Hey, 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 asymmetry, what's going on? How y'all doing? Continuing this line of questioning, if you will, I don't feel like it's an interrogation, but gosh, I get super, I get super inspired speaking with the curators of all of these collections that form our identity as North American bonsai practitioners. And I had the absolute pleasure to sit down with Michael James, who is the curator of the National Collection in Washington, D.C., And after speaking with Jack Sustick, you know, my curiosity was piqued. I do hold the National Collection on uh, a very high pedestal in terms of this national identity uh, of bonsai. And man, what an educational, informative conversation uh, I had with Michael. And, you know, ultimately, I can't help myself, as you all know, I, 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 I I see these things sort of unfolding. I have these uh, moments of inspiration. I in no way did I mean to put Michael uh, in an awkward spot proposing that the National Collection potentially open the doors to the Smithsonian as an exhibition site. But the conversation was had and you should listen. It was fantastic. And Again, you know, the support of these public collections by our community, by the public, it's what makes them tick, it's what keeps them running, and it's also what justifies their presence as, in my mind, the most pivotal and central piece of bonsai culture in all of our communities. And so understanding that and recognizing that it is a service to us to have these collections available and to the general public and to do what we can to support them, I think is is an important aspect of of being a good bonsai practitioner and contributor to the community. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy Michael James, everybody. I'm really, uh, really glad and appreciate you taking the time to join us and, uh, and talk a little bit about what you're up to at the national collection. It's, uh, it's sort of the, the, on the opposite end of the continent for us. And, uh, it's, it's always a collection that's had a huge influence on me. Um, but it's one of these like unknowns on the West coast in terms of the national collection and, and, and what you guys are, are, are up to. So it's nice to, um, both meet you, Michael, as well as to get to sit down and talk with you. Yeah. Thanks Ryan. It's nice to meet you. And, um, it'd be great, you know, better to communicate in person if you're here, but, um, you know, hopefully we can, um, get rid of some of that, uh, mystery that, you all have out there. Um, I'd love to tell you about our collection and how it came about and the, you know, what we do here. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, we talked with Jack. Uh, I don't know if you heard the Jack Sustick podcast, uh, that we did a few weeks ago, but, um, or maybe a few months ago, gosh, time is, is fairly fluid here, but he really, he really helped me understand a little bit more about the initiation of the collection and, and how the collection really, sort of came to fruition, but I, I think, you know, I just wanted to start out by asking you how you got involved with the collection after, after Jack kind of stepped down. Cause there is this like really interesting trans transferal of authority in these public collections that seems like it's, it, it feels very mysterious to me, but I mean, how, how did that whole process uh, happened for you? How did you come into the, into the curatorship of the national collection? 
Yeah, Jack was a, a big mentor to me, um, and I don't want to repeat anything that was said um, in his podcast. Uh, I did listen to it. You can repeat as much as you want. Don't feel like you're constrained. Go for it, man. There's no. This is a new podcast. Yeah. So I first met Jack in 2021. I had just graduated college, and uh, I um, was really looking for um, an opportunity to learn bonsai. So where, where would I go uh, here on the East Coast to the National Bonsai and Penjing Museum? And I, I called him up and he had recently become curator uh, after Warren Hill had left. And so I ended up speaking to Jack and said, I'd love to um, learn. I can offer my assistance helping out in any way you need it. And um, and that would be a great experience for me. So he, he was like, yes, please. And uh, very easy to talk to and get to know. Um, so I came and I worked um, here, I volunteered for um, a summer um, and just did anything he asked me to do. You know, cleaning moss off the trees, um, pruning, pulling uh, old needles off and uh, turning trees, uh, if watering when necessary. And um, that, that really helped me become familiar with the collection. Um, I ended up leaving um, thinking that was it. And uh, one day I got a call back and a, a curator here, uh, Jackson Tanner, who was curator of art and artifacts at the time left. And um, that, created an opening. Um, so I, I ended up applying for that position and got it. And so I, I worked under Jack uh, as curator and Jim Hughes as assistant curator for um, a few years after that. Mm. And you said, in, in, is this the Department of Arts and Artifacts or is the Arts and Artifacts component inside of the Bonsai and Pinging collection? I'm a little confused. It is. Um, it's... Although it also, um, it, it involves our stone collections and it involves our, our ceramics collections, non-living things. However, I had some, you know, I had an experience with uh, an education in horticulture. So I was kind of doing more uh, work with the trees in addition <laughs> to those things, uh, because as much as you can give to the trees, you know, the better they are, as you know. Yeah. So at that time, there was three full time people working on the trees and it was really great. It was, um, you know, in preparation for uh, BCI's um, 2005 convention here in Washington, D.C. So. Um, now, we, we still have a curator of art and artifacts, and uh, it's Kathleen Emerson Dell now. Uh, she, she doesn't work on the bonsai uh, as much, but she helps a lot with exhibits that we put on and the Arboretum archives. So, yeah, just some background. I am here on the U.S. National Arboretum grounds. This is a government research facility under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Okay. Yeah. And, and believe it or not, bonsai falls into that really well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as like a, a research component. Well, not so much as a research component, but enhancing the value of ornamental horticulture and trees. Okay. And one of the main missions, um, well, the mission for, um, 
the U.S. National Arboretum has enhanced the economic, environmental, and aesthetic value of ornamental horticulture. Oh, no kidding. Huh. Yeah. As well as conservation of germplasm. The Arboretum is our germplasm repository. So like we're one of many centers around the country run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture that conserves this plant DNA, like plant DNA libraries. It's, it's conserved in the grounds growing as well as, you know, cryogenic freezing of seeds and things like that, but keeping, you know, and seed banks. So it's keeping this germplasm, this plant material available for education, uh, research, whatever it's needed for in the future. We don't know. Wow. How long have they been, how long have they been doing that? How long have they been preserving germplasm? Well, the Arboretum began in, uh, the early 1920s. It used to be on the the mall of Washington, D.C. Now everyone goes there as tourists and they visit the museums. Well, that used to be cow pasture. Right, right. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up in Western Maryland. Okay, so you're... Spring. Okay, so you're relative, you're a relative local. You're like a native. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, born and raised. <laughs> <laughs> so even in your lifetime, have you seen, well, were you aware of the Arboretum growing up? Was it a place that you went, that your parents took you, grandparents, friend, like, is it a place that growing up in that region of the country you were aware of? Not so much. Um, I was aware of the Arboretum be first because of my interest in bonsai and the Potomac Bonsai Association has a spring festival. Mm-hmm every year and and when i first came to the arboretum to see that festival you know it was just it was great you know all the, these amazing trees on display um and and they were amateur trees too and then you know to see the collection here even better mm -hmm. just incredible inspiring so so how did you how did you get into bonsai then you grew up in maryland uh, you mentioned that you graduated college, you had studied horticulture, you ended up working as a curator, uh, under Jack, but where did this whole bonsai thing begin for you? Um, well, I think everyone remembers the first time they saw a tree. Sure. Um, it's pretty jaw dropping. It's inspiring. And, um, for me, that was in a community show that was being held in, my high school gymnasium and there at the end of the basketball court was a silver maple forest in a shallow oval container. And, you know, thinking back, I, I can still picture that tree, that forest composition, but thinking back, it probably uh, in bonsai standards, wasn't the best right. composition. Right. Uh, the leaves were probably a little too large, you know, the positioning of the trees were, you know, maybe a little symmetrical and not as random as they could have been, but it sure left an impression. And, you know, you know, just turning to the right was the best jar of tomato sauce that you could ever imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but this was the old fashioned community show and it wasn't a bonsai show, but someone put one in and uh, it was the one and only in the show. How old were you? Um, I think I might've been in high, 
graduating high school, early college. Okay. Okay. And, and did you go to college knowing you were going to study horticulture? No, no. I, I graduated high school with an interest in art. I had a great high school art teacher. He was really inspiring, took a lot of classes in high school under him. So I went uh, to Maryland Institute College of Art. It's, it sounds like a correctional institution, but it's not. It's, a, it's actually a competitive art school. I had to give a portfolio. Um, I was accepted. And it's a four-year art college. But I, only, I, I went and, you know, after a while, I was doing plant-themed art, general fine art, the classical arts, drawing, painting, sculpture. I wasn't sure where I was going. I hadn't formed like an artistic voice and everyone, you know, they would go there. They would mostly be saying, you know, this is a way to get into a job as a curator. Well, I never saw myself as going to school to be a curator, but so I wasn't sure where it was taking me. And at the same time, I was learning about bonsai. I was developing an interest in it and you know, I had a, a gift of one and I was going to local nurseries like Meehan's Miniatures and, and buying, you know, cutting material and growing them and, and killing them and, and planting them in sand and planting them in clay from a field. You know, just trying a lot of different things, making all the, the good mistakes that help you learn. Then, um, well, I decided to, I, I was getting a real uh, thirst for um, something practical. Maryland Institute is where, where um, Ron Lang was chair of the ceramics department. I was taking some ceramics courses as well. I met him. Now, he wasn't in, well, he may have been getting into bonsai at that time, but this was when he was still doing very uh, thick sculptural ceramics mm-hmm. pieces and installations. And I never had him as a professor, but I had, um, you know, I was in, in his department. Well, turns out, you know, I ended up meeting him again later at the museum when he had an exhibit here called Bonsai Insights. And, and actually... I met you, we didn't meet you, but I, I know you were here when I was here at the same time in 2014 or 15 for an American bonsai convention. Right. And I remember we were that. also ha- having uh, a, a, the third bonsai ceramics competition, right. or jury exhibition that Ron Lang was organizing. Right. You and I were really busy that day. We, we didn't speak, but um, it was good to have you here. And maybe that was the last time you were here. Yeah, that would have been the last time that I was there. Yeah, that was the that was actually the time, the moment that I met Jonathan Cross, because I think Jonathan won the juried competition. And then Ron said, I think you need to meet this guy. And, you know, lo and behold, that was the beginning of something really special as far as Jonathan and I's collaboration. But I, I, I remember that whole trip really... Uh, really vividly. Yeah. Because there was like an air of like, uh, you know, some sort of heightened sense of a bonsai event happening around the the National Arboretum. So I was like pretty excited to be there. Did you have time to see our exhibits? 
outside of the ceramics? Yeah, I walked through, I walked through. So the first time I ever went to the Arboretum, Aaron Packard was the assistant curator. Jack was there and I came and Aaron walked me through, uh, you know, the, the entire, uh, bonsai and penjing collection. And we talked about ideas and, you know, I, I just sort of spent the day with, with Aaron and just got a very brief moment with Jack. And then I, I think I was there one or two more times, the last time being during that uh, ABS event and, and the ceramics competition. And I didn't have nearly as much opportunity to walk through everything as I had that, that first visit. But, um, but yeah, I took as much time as I could, uh, as much time as I could to, to look at the facilities. And then, you know, the the renovation of the North American pavilion. Was it the North American pavilion? The Japanese pavilion. The Japanese pavilion. pavilion. Uh, I was, I was very aware of the renovation and, and sort of the, you know, the, the, the fact that it was happening and, you know, like I, I really likened it to the renovation that happened at Monsai Inn and in Omiya Bonsai Village. I was there during my apprenticeship, Saburo Kato, uh, passed away and then his grandson sort of started or initiated uh, this renovation of Monsai Inn, which had so much patina and such a historical component to it. But I think it was Saburo Kato's vision to, to, to renovate and upgrade Monsai Inn. And, you know, seeing that happen and like recognizing there's so much value in the age and patina uh, of a bonsai facility that like, I, I really felt like Monsai Inn lost a lot in that renovation. And so like, I was, I was watching the, this like process of raising the money and like developing the capacity to do this upgrade of the Japanese pavilion kind of from afar with this like thought in the back of my mind of like, Ooh, man, you know, like I know how, I know how I, how I personally digested and experienced the modernization of Monsai Inn. I don't, know how I'm going to feel about this, but I also didn't have a huge emotional connection. You know, I, I think I have more of like a, uh, more of like a pride slash loyalty connection to the national arboretum and the national collection. So I still have yet to be back to see the, um, to see the improved Japanese pavilion, which is certainly on, on my list of things to do. Well, you're welcome anytime. And uh, it's getting that patina. So when it first was renovated, it, it was done by um, an architect, a, a landscape architect, a Japanese man from Oregon, actually. And uh, it was um, designed with uh, the Japanese concepts of Shin, Gyo, and So. Yeah. So when you walk in, it's very formal, um, mostly in the pedestals form. And then they gradually get more natural until the trees are sitting on boulders. And that his idea was that um, those, uh, you know, those trees are uh, in a formal setting and then they're going back to where they came from at the end, that natural uh boulder setting where many of those trees were rooted in like the, the painting behind me is uh our tree number 14 um donated that it was in the original donation of 53 trees from the country of japan uh it's it was in the iteogawa prefecture uh kenichio gucci harvested it from those cliffs and and maybe you've seen that area i've only seen it in videos but those those 
those junipers hanging off the sides of the sure. cliffs. And sure. I mean, that's, that's the, um, the, the beauty that bonsai captures uh, yeah. the natural beauty and, and, and it takes anyone to, um, those cliff tops without actually having to climb hundreds of feet up. Right. 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 Well, that's what you hope you, that's what you hope your compositions do transport people. Now, what was the name of the gentleman who did the design? Uh, you said it was a Japanese landscape architect and garden designer from Oregon. Do you remember his name? Um, it's not coming to me at the moment. That's I'm fine. sorry. No, no. Yeah. I, I was just curious because there's, there is quite like a, a lineage in history of, of Japanese garden designers, landscape designers and architects in Oregon. But I know, you know, Sada has been largely responsible for the ja- Portland Japanese garden. And then uh, the, the major water feature there was done by Kurisu and Kurisu International is a very major Japanese landscape you, architecture. You just- you just brought the name to, to my, to my head. Yeah. That, that's was makes sense. Makes total sense. Yeah. They've, they've been such a, a staple and pillar of the Japanese landscape community. I was down working at the Morikami museum in Florida and did, had no idea that was a Kurisu design garden, but um, that's really, that's really special. That's really, you know, I think as much as it's about the trees, it's about the landscape, it's about the garden. It's like the designer having that, the, the provenance and the accolades of a really high level designer. I, I, I find that to be really cool that the Arboretum wanted to do it on that level. Cause that's a tough level to achieve. Right. Yeah. And he did a great job and, and it incorporates, um, garden, too, which is cooling and healthy for the plants. So below the pedestals are ferns and and um, sweet grass, and so just having those those plants nearby, just the evaporative cooling of the environment. Because uh, bonsai pavilions can be really hot in the summertime, so that that was a nice aspect, and it softens the the look of the area. Yeah, so that. Um, the, the pavilion uh, was done quite a few years ago. It was rededicated and now, um, you know, it's getting that patina. At the beginning, the wood, sapele wood slabs with live edge were as smooth and glossy as a piece of indoor furniture. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, now they're, they're graying and they're, they're to, if you ask me, they look even better. Well, yeah. well, they're getting to where they're going to look great, you know, as they finish that that patina look, you know, cool. get through the, the awkward teenager phase. <laughs> the gangly teenager phase. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. So, so you went to the Maryland Institute of Ceramic Art. You had this sort of trajectory. If I got that wrong, feel free to well, correct me. Yeah. It's the Maryland Institute College of Art. It's College of Art. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, and, and they call that Micah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you went to Micah and you're on, uh, an artistic trajectory, but people are saying, you know, Michael, like this is really kind of a curatorial path that you might be on. You finish with a BA in fine arts or do you, cause you, I, I thought I heard you say you you went to school for horticulture. Yeah. So, so I, I was sorry. Yeah. Getting back to that story. Um, so I had to, uh, started having a real thirst for something practical and, um, you know, I love art and still do and didn't stop loving it, but it's a luxury. 
you know, it's, it's not, you don't, you don't do art until, you know, all the bills are paid and, and food is on the table, you know, and uh, it's, it's great to have that luxury, but you know, I was, there was something I was lacking. So um, no, I stopped going and, and I, I was looking for that, the, uh, the path that I needed and I found it in, in plant science. Mm. So um, I applied to Cornell University and was accepted to their College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Cool. Yeah. So that's where um, I studied horticulture and got a BA. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, yes, I mean. Cornell, uh, my, my favorite professor in college got his, uh, got his PhD at Cornell. So, uh, I've always looked at Cornell as like, you know, from, from positive association, sort of this like, uh, pie in the sky horticultural, uh, institution. Yeah. And I don't know if it still is. I know Cal Poly where I went to school basically, uh, doesn't really have, uh, a, a horticulture program anymore. They, they've, they've sort of gone the way of engineering architecture and, um, I think probably more or less gone where the demand in society is, you know, and it used to be almost a primarily ag based school. So I don't know where Cornell's at these days, but it had a tremendous reputation. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still uh, going pretty strong in, in, in the sciences. And, um, you know, Bill Dalvanis actually is an alumni from there. Cool. So cool. You know, we, we would, you know, we had a class, um, got my professor to take the class out to his place and we looked at his his collection nice. in, their, in the international arboretum there right in rochester yeah very cool very cool so you saw you saw bonsai at this community event in your high school maybe right as you're exiting high school entering college you're going to Micah and studying art, which just so happens to put you into the ceramics department where Ron Lang is a closeted bonsai ceramicist acting as a sculptor, right? As, as he self-described it. And then you realize that you, you're not, that you, you're being called in a different direction. You transfer to Cornell, you get a, a bachelor's of science in horticulture. And soon after graduating, you find yourself, uh, working and, 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 and learning under Jack Sustic. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, you got it. Okay. So when you were in college at Cornell pursuing horticulture, were you starting to pick up bonsai as something that you did? Or was it just this back of the mind interest that you had as you're learning about plants and sort of the way they function? Yeah. So for there were, there were two things there. Um, I was going studying with the intent maybe to um, take what I learned back to my family farm. Uh, my father began a farm and, and grew blueberries. And so I was thinking this is the practical part that I can take with me and, and really, you know, put the food on the table, Yeah, you know, and, and not be a starving artist. Um, but the, the, you know, I'm always found myself in the library reading, you know, about, you know, plant physiology and things like that in, in the hopes and better understanding to know how to do bonsai. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it was something that I was doing and it was my interest, but I, I had multiple uh, reasons for, for studying there. Yeah. Cool. Cool. We don't for bonsai classes. So. Right. But everything you learn in a, you know, plant physiology, uh, botany, um, greenhouse management and all that all applies to, to bonsai. 
Yeah, somehow, America. right? <laughs> somehow, so in some like obscure way, it all connects to this weird uh, horticultural conundrum or anomaly that we've all in, chosen to engage with, uh, for better or worse. So, so what did your parents think about you going to number one art school and then number two transitioning into a more practical area of study and horticulture? They've supported me all, all through, um, you know, they, they, you know, they didn't, um, you know, force me in any direction. They uh, gave me good advice and, and, and guidance and direction when I was young and, and um, ended up in the, you know, in, in the fields at a young age, you know, growing plants. So, you know, I've always had a, a, a strong connection for, for plants. Um, you know, I guess, um, the hard work of it, I early on hated and learned to love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that goes along with bonsai. It's hard work. Uh, People tell me in the museum often, you know, this is really hard work, of course, and it's worth it. It's rewarding. Totally. Pretty blue collar in the end, you know, it's like everybody wants to call each other, uh, uh, or call them, call themselves an artist, but one big part of art is, is the labor involved. And when one big part of bonsai, I'd say the most significant is the labor involved. It's very laborious. Yeah. Repetition, repetition. Yeah. And just and physic physicality, carrying trees, you know, uh, applying heavy gauge wire, uh, pruning and sitting in awkward positions, uh, all day, uh, repotting and picking trees up and setting them down. And yeah, I, the moving, the moving, the constant moving. I, I know just here at Mirai, when I first started this place, I, I had a number of apprentices and, and I would always, I, I had a gym membership for myself and then sort of an obscure gym membership that, uh, that my apprentices, whoever was here at the time would use just as like a way to physically fortify the people that were here. Cause we were working with really big trees and this is before I ever had, uh, the dingo or any kind of mechanization that could move trees for me. I mean, it was, it was really, it was really sort of, uh, you know, strong, uh, a strong lifting capacity with the legs in the back that, that got us through the first, gosh, probably eight years at Mirai. Um, so, so that, that physicality of the whole thing, I mean, even at Mr. Kramer's as an apprentice, the physicality of that apprenticeship was a huge part of it that people don't really talk about or, or maybe even have an awareness around. It's, it's a lot of work. I, and I would assume as a curator, uh, you probably have a lot of volunteers, but there are probably just some things that you need to be the one that's doing, I'm guessing. Yeah, we do have a lot of volunteers. We couldn't do it without them. And um, uh, we have a great staff as well. Um, assistant curator, Andy Bello. We have an apprentice every year. Um, this year it's Angelica Ramirez. Um, we, you know, about 12 volunteers. Um, so, yeah, um, it takes all of those people. Um, yeah, so the um, oh, getting back to the you know the repetition and the hard work though, you know that that's bonsai therapy. You know, if you ask me, I, I mean, I, yeah, I've 
listened to a lot of your your podcasts so you know i know the some of the conversations that you've had and and um you know even chris baker the last uh, person you've interviewed um the curator of chicago botanic garden um and and his work with um and i think it was him saying he was doing it uh with veterans yeah yeah and and the, the the work of involving veterans in bonsai and and that therapy that that gives tomorrow's veterans day and um there's something to that you know it it that repetition and that work uh it is good for us it is that exercise is good for you it makes you stronger uh and healthy and um you know so those are good reasons to to do bonsai um my father started, well, he, he was drafted in Vietnam, so he was a veteran. And he started that, his blueberry farm because he was needing that, that, that therapy, that back to nature, you know, therapy. And, and he built his home, you know, secluded into the woods uh, where I grew up. And, um, so he he got it not through bonsai but but for be having that seclusion and that privacy the 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 things you see in in war you know can be awful and and traumatic and and it gives a, a reprieve from that it, it it gives a safe place so um i think you know the groups that are doing uh, you know allowing uh veterans to be involved in in the art of bonsai is is very good yeah and, and there's there is a lot of therapy therapeutic yeah the first time well, i'll never forget I, I i i found bonsai when i was 12 and and then uh you know i i grew up in a very small town on the western slope in, in colorado um kind of near aspen but just sort of a wide spot in the road and a couple times a year, we would go across the Continental Divide to Denver, which was like a three hour drive. And for growing up in a small town that, you know, going to a big city was always like a really intriguing thing for me as a kid. And whenever we would go to Denver, my dad always had a Yellow Pages book uh, that he kept at, at our house in case he needed to call, you know, for whatever reason, some sort of uh, expanded group of experts to do whatever thing he needed to do. And I would look through it, you know, for bonsai and, uh, Harold Sasaki, Colorado bonsai limited. And there's one other nursery in Colorado when I was a kid that, that carried bonsai, but Harold was certainly the guy when it came to bonsai, uh, back in the eighties and nineties in Colorado. Uh, and I found his number and I went and saw Harold and, and, uh, you know, sort of really started my infatuation specifically with Yamadori because Harold was one of the pioneers of Yamadori collecting in Colorado, him and Dick Melody way back in the day. And, you know, through Harold became aware of Harold worked with a variety of individuals, but, um, there was a, a, a state penitentiary that was down in the Southeastern portion of the state where they would teach bonsai as like a therapeutic, mechanism, a skill set, a tool, an occupation, a hobby, whatever, whatever you want to consider it for the inmates that were, that were in this institution, you know, for whatever reason. And I just, I thought that was really curious. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, that bonsai is some sort of valuable, tool, like, uh, like, a. know, I didn't know about a yoga practice at the time, or I didn't, really understand my own 
per- particular perspective on spirituality of bonsai. And I really didn't know much about the physicality of bonsai because I had just started collecting Yamadori and I really, you know, had a bunch of sticks and pots like everybody else does when they begin. So, but it stuck out to me. It was like, oh, wow, the, the, this is a, this is a state penitentiary that holds hardened, pretty hardened criminals. And they're choosing not only to more or less mandate that, that there's uh, fabrication of license plates and all manner of other uh, fabricatable goods out of metal there, but they're also allowing them to, to take bonsai courses. They're teaching them bonsai. That really had a huge impression on me because I didn't understand it. But I, I, the fact that uh, an adult as a kid, an adult institution trying to help people improve themselves as individuals. I mean, that's an optimistic way of looking at prisons, but that's the way I saw it at that time was teaching bonsai. And it was just like, whoa, you know, and the more, the more, the deeper that you get into bonsai, that kind of altruistic path or application of bonsai that we are seeing as you're speaking about veterans, or I know David Cutchins down in Florida does a lot of work with people that have PTSD, whether from war or other life experiences, suffer from depression, and you really use bonsai as a therapeutic mechanism. I didn't see those kinds of altruistic things happening in Japan. And I don't see those kinds of altruistic things bonsai serving an altruistic purpose like that in other countries that I go to, of course, I'm not necessarily, that doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means I'm not exposed to it if it does. But I do see in North America, the kind of therapeutic benefit that you're speaking to of that contact with nature and specifically bonsai satisfying that, uh, what I would consider a necessity, uh, to be a more common application here. And I think it's pretty rock and roll. I think it's pretty rad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and getting back to the arboretum's mission, you know, to, to give, to conserve those plants and, and appreciate, you know, trees for their ornamental and aesthetic value, their intrinsic beauty. Um, we as a whole and as a society, I definitely think we need more of that. You know, we're so removed from the wild, you know, you know, when's the last time the average person has been able to, you know, get to the top of a cliff and, and, and see the trees blowing off the edge and down over the side. And not everyone can do that, but bonsai gives the excess, brings that, that feeling to people so you don't have to go up the cliff to 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 experience that um so so bonsai you know it's the 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 arboretum here you know it does a lot you know with with increasing the value of plants through research and breeding and many other ways but bonsai does it by turning that plant into something that that can be art not all bonsai are art but many are mm-hmm. Ooh, how do you delineate a bonsai that's art from one that's not art well uh this gets into the big i, I won't I won't get into what's art and what's not art but totally. because that's like a, a conversation that you could argue over forever but um art has to oftentimes evoke emotion and it does uh, bonsai can do that and bonsai oftentimes and going back to penjing we're also the national bonsai and penjing museum the 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 penjing the penzai from from china 
you know, and then the origin of this art form, where it began, most likely, is, you know, that we know of, um, they're oftentimes given a poetic name. So, so that also, you know, gives something, it, it gives it a, a meaning, it says what it is, or what it represents, or, or it alludes to what it's supposed to make you feel. Um, you know, we have Goshen here, the protector of the spirit. You know, it, it gives meaning to that um, that forest composition that John Wynaka created. Um, and then, you know, every uh, most people know the story of how each tree represents, you know, his grandchildren. And, and that that that's art, you know, that that that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Now that becomes a big complex discussion. I've just never heard somebody say some bonsai trees are art and some aren't. And I just thought, oh, that's interesting. I, yeah. But we don't need to dig into that. I wanted to, I wanted to circle back though, because the Arboretum from what you just told me, uh, kind of established, took root in the 1920s along the mall in DC. Now it's outside of that area as a much more expanded vision of plant conservation, as you called, um, sort of their seed bank and those efforts as germplasm conservation for a variety of reasons. And the bonsai in the arboretum, the mission of the bonsai or the purpose of the bonsai is to enhance the economic value of an ornamental plant. And this art form does that very, very well through the reasons that we all know as bonsai practitioners, primarily by representing nature in miniature and creating this incredible fascination of metaphorical context through the miniaturized tree. But there's another component to the National Arboretum's ethos around bonsai that I've that I've never really understood, but you've touched on today, and that is the notion of conserving and conserving in the form of bonsai. How how as a curator do you wrestle with the mission of the arboretum being in conserving and maintaining while you're dealing with an evolving form and ever changing shape? Because that really, from what I have understand understood about the arboretum, has always been a point of tension in terms of how much can you aesthetically continue to, uh, unravel or, uh, orate the story of the tree. If the ambition is to maintain and conserve and to keep it as is, because we all know in Boneside, that's impossible. It's going to change. It's just a matter of how is it going to change and how are you going to manage that change? Yeah. Well, so, you know, the, the original gift of 53 trees, uh, in 1976 for the bicentennial, our, our, our country's 200th birthday. What a great present. Um, I take it. I take that in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they came, they were very special trees. They were, um, brought together by Saburo Kato and, um, you know, chosen many of them were donated in the name of, um, you know, maybe the, um, the head of the Japanese Forest Service or, you know, Department of Agriculture or a political appointee. Um, and, the, and the original artist didn't get the credit for, for donating them. Sometimes they did, uh, sometimes no, but um, 
you know, it was a diplomatic gift, uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, a form of reconciliation between two countries as well. And so they came, they, they were, you know, Saburo Kato was very careful about choosing them. They were beautiful when they came. Now, you know, almost 50 years later, of course, they've changed. You can look at the pictures like um, uh, the, in the book, Timeless Trees, years ago that came out of how they look and how they look now. Now, part of that is just, you know, performing good, you know, bonsai maintenance and decisions for years because you like patina, like it's that's a probably a misunderstood concept in the, the West. Um, but it it's um some things just get better with age um and and bonsai do that so the but we're always walking past them we're always looking at them we have to water them every single day so you know we we as as curators uh we have to decide you know what what looks right and what doesn't what's uh what's the right as asymmetry um and what is the the right uh visual balance between foliage pads and things like that so there are decisions but you know these these trees are historical and then you know we get the gift of of penjing um that began with um it started the Chinese pavilion and um, a major donation uh, by Dr. Yisan Wu from Hong Kong. And we, we received 30 some trees from that. Well, the, these are historical gifts and, and we, we, we don't want Penjing, you know, Dr. Yisan Wu's Penjing to look like a Japanese bonsai. There's different techniques. The, the clip and grow method that Dr. Yisan Wu was doing on his trees, it's very different than what was done in the, the trees from the Japanese collection. Um, you know, Dr. Yisan Wu, he, he was, um, just to give some background, he was a billionaire. He, he was a banker. Um, and, but the thing was, he didn't identify as a billionaire banker. Uh, he identified as a literate farmer. And there's some, you can lose some things in translation there, but he, I think what, what he was saying when, when he said that was, he was he was a literati he he was a a scholar yet he didn't mind getting his hands in the dirt as well sure, yeah. but he was a very well educated and um you know he had that luxury to do um the art and and he um and he maintained a great collection and um and 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 spread it throughout the world you can see his trees in montreal now and um and many of them here um so getting back to your question we, we want to preserve that and you know we don't i'm not this isn't my collection totally. so not trying to impose my own preferences and you know with art um it is hard to say what is art and what is beautiful to one person is not beautiful to another. So, um, 
you know, these trees were styled for certain reasons by certain artists and they had, you know, a way that they would do the, the, you know, Harry, I'm here in the Harry Harrell reception area and Harry Harrell had a unique style to, to his pruning. It wasn't like John Naka. So why should a Harry Harrell tree in a museum be pruned like John Naka like to, to prune his trees. John Naka had his own style of making a foliage pad. You know, I can see his his styles drawn in his books, bonsai techniques, and they're oftentimes like a sharp diamond. And he would come here for years and and you know talk with the museum staff while he was alive and, and, you know, explain what he wanted. You know, I had the privilege of meeting him multiple times and, and, you know, watching him work on Goshen or just doing what he told us to do with Goshen. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is, this has become part of my fascination with this world of curation. Cause it's so, it's, it's such a different world from the world that I exist in, you know, where I'm sort of the master of my, of my kingdom here. And, and the trees that are here are, are subject to, you know, whatever I feel is, is right. Like I don't have that. I do have historical trees here that I definitely take into consideration historical context. And Mr. Kimura handled a lot of Kichi bonsai or national treasure trees. Um, he altered some of them, most of them for the better, some of them quite controversially altered, you know? And so I started to become aware of like this, um, the presence of this, uh, conundrum, you know, it's almost like a moral or ethical, uh, not test, but like a moral or ethical wrestling match that you have with historical pieces that, as you're saying, they carry with them this uh, time capsule of their creator and the thought process and the logic of the intention, as well as the uh, technique of the times or of the practitioner. And to, to be able to digest all of those complexities of every single piece in a collection and maintain that has always really, uh, I think, seemed very daunting to me. Very, very daunting, you know, and challenging. How can one person see it in so many ways? Because the human mind is a pattern recognition uh, efficient you know, mechanism uh, of us as an organism. So it's like you, you really kind of have to override your, uh, your choice of aesthetics, you know, what does look good, what doesn't look good starts to become a little bit more inert in the grander discussion of trying to put yourself in the shoes of what somebody else would see with different experiences from a different culture and a different aesthetic value being placed on the tree. And I, I think it's to watch, to watch curation take place at the highest level, I think is one of the most impressive aspects of bonsai, you know, which is again, stimulated this unintentional dive down all of these conversations with different curators. Cause it's just like, how, what a, what a conundrum. And it sounds to me like you really received a lot of your formal bonsai training at the Arboretum from, from Jack maybe. Yeah. And, and, um, when Jack left, he did a, a good thing by, by preparing. Uh, he, he, um, I was able to know that he was leaving 
and know that I would be there when he was gone and have to make these decisions that he was making and telling me, uh, you know, yeah. about or what to do. And, and so I got to, you know, understand the collection better during that time. But you know what? I don't think it, you can be with, you know, anyone can prepare you (laughs) enough for that. I wish you would come back some days and just tell me what to do. Uh, Because (laughs) um, the, the trees are, there's just, they're all so unique and the root systems and you really have to understand them by just watching them grow and, and repotting them time and time again. And yes, I was caring, I was watering them and all of that, but I still, and even to this day, I'm still learning every tree in the collection and the little, you know, nuances of what they, uh, how they like the water and how they like the sun exposure and, and those things Uh, it's, it's constantly understanding better. So no one can prepare you fully for that. What was your, uh, (laughs) so Jack is there and he's kind of preparing you and stuff. The, the, the first day that you were the curator and it was all up to you. What was that like? (laughs) <laughs> that's you, you just go through the motions like any other day you know you water you check that for insects um uh you you, you prune what needs to be pruned it, it's it didn't happen like one day no yeah it, okay. it, now did you want to did you want the curatorship when jack was stepping down I did. I was, I felt like I was ready for it at that time. Well, I never, yeah, that was the wrong thing to think that I was ready for it because you're not, you're not, (laughs) when you think you are, you're not ready for it yet. Um, but, um, yeah, I had prepared myself. I'll, I'll say that. That ignorance is bliss in the beginning though, right? Because you're like, yeah, I'm ready for this. Let's do it. I'm going to be the curator. We're going to kick ass and take names. And then suddenly, you know, it's all, it's just you. And it's like, uh, okay, this is a little quieter and a little more lonely than I, uh, remember it. Maybe. I don't know that that I, I, uh, I certainly felt that way a number of times at Mirai. Well, in, in the, in the government though, no, no one, um, you know, it's like the Marines, you, you don't earn, I mean, you don't, you're not given a position, you have to earn it. So, you know, even Jack, though Jack left and yeah, I was a likely candidate to become curator. I still, it was open to the public, you know, it's an equal opportunity employer. So, you know, it was announced, you know, nationwide and, and, you know, people applied and, and I had to apply just like anyone else did. Sure. So, sure. And how much, how much of being a curator at the national collection is, is being, uh, you know, to some degree a diplomat, like how much of, how much of your job is interacting with, uh, people? Oh, it's a good portion. Um, I have, um, I give a lot of tours and, and, uh, also I like to, you know, I have to, meet the donors and the artists often, you know, Chase Rose Aid was here today. And, um, you know, when a, 
uh, someone who donates a tree who, who is still living, styled that tree or grew it for many years. I love to get their advice. You know, they don't know they don't own the tree anymore because it's here at our facility. But I love to get their advice. And Chase, you know, was explaining, you know, to about his Zokova forest and and how he he brought the seeds from Japan and and planted them all together randomly and then in like three containers and then took the the trees and arranged them back together grew them on for years and and now we're we're still working out some things with that forest and and chase was here and so we got i got to get his input on it and um so that's great i don't have to make every decision myself but when you know someone you know after they pass you know like john knock is no longer with us he can't come and say, you know, how he would, you know, what he would do with his trees anymore. Um, so then you have to go off of historical paths, uh, yeah. you know, and what has been done. But yes, trees change. They, 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 they go in and out of health um, and, and branches sometimes are lost. So, you know, things have to be reevaluated and new decisions have to be made. But I think with bonsai uh, and you, you know, you can read the tree from the ground up. You look at what's been done, you know, from that tree from the base upward and the movements, the, the, the angles, uh, the, the, the radiuses of the curves, things like that. You know, there are patterns that, you know, trees are fractals. There are patterns that extend upward to the tree in smaller increments and, and smaller and smaller as they get to the end. So, you know, in a way, every branch of a tree is, a you know, another tree in of itself. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, so do you have your own bonsai collection outside of the trees that you tend to? Yeah, I do. You know, I got the bug and sometimes uh, if, <laughs> if I don't, uh, <laughs> you sound so sad about it. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Well, I, I have to, I, I work on bonsai all day and go home yeah. and, and sometimes do bonsai more, yeah. uh, but that's okay. And you know, I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it. So how, how, yeah, uh, so I, I can't, oh, I can't give, you know, my personal trees, you know, all the attention that I might want to, you know, because, you know, I'm busy with here. I, I, this is my priority. Yeah. Yeah. No. And what, what a, what a tremendous responsibility it is. I, I, I don't necessarily know. I don't necessarily know that, that, that responsibility is something that would appeal to me. I don't know. I don't, I've thought about it a lot because I talked with Chris and I've talked a lot with Aaron and I talked with Ted Matson and talked with, uh, Jack and you know, it's like, yeah, to Jack's point last time, like this isn't the place to be working out new ideas as an incubator for horticultural advancements and aesthetic, you know, fads and trends. And it's like, yeah, no, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense that that's not the place that you do that. Um, and so then it's like, as a, as a curator, 
I mean, I, I'm thinking about literally what you're saying of like the way that Kurisu designed the Japanese pavilion uh, sort of revampment really both softened and created a horticultural environment that was friendly to the trees because the fact that the mall used to be cow fields uh, and now it's a concrete jungle and you know, DC in general generates its own weather as sort of a, a concrete metropolis that is vacant of a lot of the buffering of the natural environment, sort of absorbing reflected heat, whatever sort of changes in, in light and sun intensity, humidity, moisture, etc. It's like it, it, it it does appear to me to be a horticulturally challenging place to grow bonsai. I mean, I don't know if it is or not, but it appears to be. It is. It's, it's extremely hot and we don't always have that, you know, cool, restful night for, for plants. Um, but this speaks to the importance of, uh, of planting trees in our environments and, and the value of of plants that you know getting back to that arboretum mission the the value of plants is is more than you know their beauty it's the it's the need it's the comfort um the like the therapy the so much so much so the arboretum is conserving those plants you know for those reasons bonsai increases the value because it turns you know it can turn a plant into an art an art form your job is different you know you are that art, bonsai artist and you are pushing you know the the styles and and what's popular in in that uh, and you you know you what a great experience to work with kimura who you know is another great bonsai artist and um what he did was i don't know that his trees i was just looking at um the bonsai art of kimura and um his trees are their sculpture yeah. they're, you know he they i'm not sure he was even designing them to look like a tree at all they, you know it looks like a, a you know a graceful vertical brancusi sculpture shooting into the air so totally. they're you know they're not like they're not your average tree. You, I bet you could take a tree as a bonsai artist and you, you could buy uh, a nursery plant, you know, from, from any nursery style it. You probably spend like, you know, maybe $180 on a really nice nursery potted tree. I bet you, how much do you think you could turn that into, you know, and, and, and resell it for, I mean, I would imagine, twice as much maybe if you can't you're not going to make a living at bonsai for sure <laughs> that's it yeah that's part of it yeah i mean i ask myself that question all the time you know i think i, I think working with nursery stock is one of the great is one of the great um what can i say it's one of the great um um I'm thinking not hazings it's one of the great um proving grounds of bonsai right what can you do with what can you do with a robotic piece of stock? Because nursery stock is it's a robot, it's a it's a lab rat, it's a it's a you know it doesn't have a genetic anomaly, it doesn't have an environmental intricacy, it's a mass produced duplicate. And what can you do with that? You know, I think that's really I think that's a beautiful challenge. But what I also hear you saying 
you know, is like this, this, um, this benefit that comes from the interaction with these trees that as bonsai practitioners, we all understand, but certainly being in such an urban environment where the national arboretum exists. I mean, I, I, I almost see it being more important and you're talking about the arboretum using bonsai to raise the understanding of economic value of plant material. But there's two other big things that I see. There's, there's like a, a health benefit to the arboretum's presence where it's at under the kind of tension that would exist in the, you know, center of government, as well as there's this gesture from the Japan, the country of Japan to the country of the United States and the donation of that collection, which is really a representative of peace or of, of trying to make amends. And I've never actually thought about that as, as, as bonsai carrying that sentiment and that context as well, even knowing the purpose of the donation. Uh, I never really thought of how much the national collection embodies in that space. And now it's interesting to hear the Japanese pavilion walking you through a transition of formality to almost the the origin of the tree informal natural in its in its transition what a rich environment that you get to exist in every day what a rich environment you're in charge of but what a rich environment you get to share and really be the representative of to the the greater population at large i mean i i i kind of look at your position in a state of awe, just like, wow, Michael, like, geez, man, that's pretty intense. Did I romanticize it too much? You can be like, dude, you've gone too far, but I am (laughs) seeing all of this as you were talking. I'm just like, God, I've never thought about that either. Thanks for that. That, That's a nice compliment. Uh, But you've also been realistic and said, this is something you might not want to do. So (laughs) (laughs) there are two sides to it. Yeah, sure. Now, you know, the Yamaki pine is, is 400 years old. And when I show people that tree, they, they say, how old do plants live? How old do trees live? And so, you know, I had to look it up. How old does your average white pine live? And it's about two, 250 years sure. in the wild. So this tree is going on 400 and it's the oldest tree on the arboretum grounds. Um, so it's a little, it's over, it's, it's age expectancy, but it is a bonsai, you know, it's not 200 feet in the air with a canopy, you know, separated by, um, you know, 200 feet of wood of dead, dead xylem cells. You know, it's, it's only three feet tall. So, um, that's an advantage, you know, that, that gives it, and hopefully, you know, it has another 400 more years to live as well, but they're cared for a lot better than trees are cared for in the wild. Trees in the wild don't get care. They're, they're subject to everything nature has to throw at them, but they're very strong. You know, they're versatile. They, they, they're adapted to the, to the wild forces of nature. Yeah, no doubt about it. What, what, what do you do when you get off of work? What do you do on your days? off? Do you have days off? What do you do on your days off? Like, how do you, how do you stay motivated to continue to do this thing that is pretty demanding? 
Well, you know, I have a family, so, you know, I, I, I love, you know, caring and spending time with them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a, that, that's a great, it's not, yeah, that, that's a whole other, you know, just as important responsibility, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So that's kind of when you're not, when you're not performing the job of a curator, you're a, you're a dad, you're a, you're a family man, you're taking care of, taking care of the tribe. Do you have time for yourself? Are there other outlets that you have for, for, for stress, for creativity? I mean, you've got your own bonsai, obviously the Arboretum takes precedent. Yeah. You know, I, um, I coach my son's soccer team. So, um, that's a real enjoyment for me. Um, and, um, well, I, I help coach it. I'm not the, the main coach, but, um, that's a, a great outlet. Um, and, um, yeah, I've always, I love, I love gardening and landscaping and, and bonsai is, is, um, you know, it's training plants, but I think the the techniques and all the the great things about bonsai can be applied to the landscape and our environment as well. And I think that really opens it up to a lot more people. Be, not everyone's lives can fit into the demand of bonsai and being tied down to plants and, and having to water every single day. Um, you know, these potted plants, you know, it, plants can fend for themselves. You put them in the ground and, and they, their, their value is also intrinsically beautiful and they give you that shade and the, the, the improve the environment and, and all those things. Um, so getting back to the Arboretum and all the benefits that, that it does for the improvement of plants on the whole other side of it is it, is through research and breeding, um, breeding plants that do have benef- more beneficial ornamental, you know, attributes like uh, better flowers, uh, more cold hardiness, uh, more sure. disease resistance. So, you know, I would, I'd like to encourage your viewers to check out the Arboretum's website and the list of all the plants that that have been bred and improved by the National Arboretum and and encourage people to use those plants. Yeah, maybe in your landscape, of course, but try them as bonsai. There's so many. If you're going to grow a plant for your whole life and and you're going to care for water it every day, choose the right species or cultivar. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're going to give it that time, right? Yeah. Because, you know, many of these old trees in, you know, the the oldest trees in our collection are from the Japanese, you know, and then, and that, that original gift, um, because it's been done so long in Japan. Um, and, you know, they're very careful about the genetics material of, of the plants that they start with. The, the Miyajima white pine is, is a really great species for bonsai and, and probably, you know, exclusive almost. It's almost like a, a monocrop in bonsai in Japan. Sure, um, sure. But, but it, it's that way for a reason because, you know, it, its origin 
you know, has become out of out of the wild and cultivated because of its great qualities. So there's so many plants that have been improved here that you know with their disease resistance, their insect resistance. So uh, you know, great bonsai material. And here in North America, those those selections and and choices are just we're just beginning to understand using our native material. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, the the trees that the arboretum or the plants that the arbore- arboretum breeds and hybridizes and and creates these new cultivars of what happens to those? Do those do those move into nursery production? Are the patents sold to uh, a propagator or or something like that? How does that how does how does it move from the arboretum's hands out into the world and, and the greater abroad? They're distributed by nurseries. So plant nurseries will will propagate them, uh, asexually clone them and distribute them. Um, so they can, you know, these plants, uh, there's a list on the arboretum website where you can find these. Um, and you you know you you may be able to find them in a, in a nursery. Um, you know, some of them may be a little bit harder to find, you know, and more rare. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. you know the the um, you know John Creech, who who um, was director of the arboretum, and and brought that helped to bring those uh, plants to the the fifty three bonsai to the U S. Um, you know, he was a plant explorer. He would go out and and find you know things in the forests of Asia that had ornamental uses. You know, here in America, um, but just weren't known and weren't available in the nursery trade. So he would find these plants and and you know appreciate them. And since our region is so similar to you know Japan and China, that you know they they often do very well here and are great in the landscape, kusumono, uh, accent plants, and all those, you know, things like that. Asian forest plants. Right. Yeah, interesting. I've never really thought about that, that that the Northeast is similar to Japan and it's climate. Certainly is hot and humid in both regions, uh, to be sure. Yeah. So, I mean, as you continue your curatorship, do you have ambitions or do you have ideas of where you want to take the collection or things that you want to do, things that you aspire to achieve, improve? How does that work? I mean, is that a, is that a part of, is that a part of curation? Is that, how does that work with, within the Arboretum? Of course. Um, yeah, just as far as the collection grow, goes and every tree, um, we want to continue to have um, improve the trees that we have and the health and the aesthetic value and also improve the, the diversity and the, the breadth of the collection as a whole. And, and we wanted to represent, you know, the changes that are happening, you know, now you know, all throughout the world, there's great artists in, um, you know, China rising, Taiwan, um, you know, we're, 
we have three main legacy collections here, the Japanese, the Chinese, and the North American, but we're not limiting our collection to just those three regions. You know, we want it to be a global collection of, of what bonsai is and, and, and the plants that are, that are, are good for bonsai. So, um, you know, I want, there's, there's trees, um, you know, that, you know, I'm looking for artists that I'm looking for incorporating mm -hmm. into our collection. Um, and as well as, you know, the interpretation and the exhibits that show bonsai in the, in the importance of it. Um, you know, you, you're on to something when you talk about the cons, the, the ability of bonsai to, bring awareness to conservation and in endangered yeah. environments. You really are on to something. I mean, this, uh, the, the National Bonsai in Penjing Museum is one of the most popular places here on the Arboretum. Yeah. People are drawn to it. They, they, and so they might not understand it, but that through interpretation and helping them learn how to appreciate with it and understand, they know what they like. It's like love at first sight. They, they love it, but sure. they don't know why there's so much, so many layers. And then when people understand those layers and what bonsai, what the purpose and why, it, you know, how it's representing and mimicking nature in the wild, um, you know, then the appreciation just increases. And then the fact that it, it outlives the, the master, then it even increases more. Wow. It's something right. that you have to pass on. Uh, you know, you have to do for prosperity, not yourself. Yeah. The selfless dedication. Interesting. So, but does the, the is the Arboretum, or excuse me, is the Bonsai and Penjing collection a, uh, accumulating new pieces on a consistent basis? Is this something that is a part of the collection continuing to evolve and grow it? I, cause I, I haven't, I hadn't heard that or I wasn't aware of that. And I know, yeah. Is that something that you guys do yeah. routinely, yeah. frequently, consistently? We do. We're still adding trees to our collection. Um, we, and we also have trees that we put on long-term loans to other institutions. Um, so, um, you know, because sometimes, uh, you know, a tree could be better and, and be healthier in another environment. And, and there's instances where we, we have a tree that is, would be healthier somewhere else. We, we, and a long-term loan is a long-term loan. You know, we, we are not, uh, yes, it is still owned by the U.S. National Arboretum, but it's, you know, we're not intending to get it back soon. Um, right, right. <laughs> and, but so as far as increasing our collection, uh, you can't just leave a bonsai on our doorstep. There's a process. <laughs> um, yeah. So we have a nomination process. And what that entails is um, Dr. Olson, Dr. Richard Olson, the director of the Arboretum, ultimately has the say of, of whether we're going to accept a tree or not. But there is uh, there are committees here, uh, a committee in the Arboretum and with Arboretum staff, uh, which I'm a part of. And then there's also a committee with the National Bonsai Foundation. So the National Bonsai Foundation is a nonprofit organization that supports the museum. It's a non-governmental organization and, and it's 
sole purpose uh, is to to help you know fund this this museum and 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 help people understand the art of bonsai Mm-hmm. But they're different. It's not this museum is not run by the National Bonsai Foundation, but it couldn't run without it. I've never quite understood that overlap. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So there's a difference. Uh, you know, the the government does run lean right now, and um, you know, a lot of people think that you know because it's a government facility. Um, you know, there's there's endless money. Well, you know. It is, you know, everyone's museum, you know, all American citizens museum, um, but it, it's, there's not endless amount of money for it. And with the help of the National Bonsai Foundation, it's able to run and, and continue on. It's a very safe museum. I mean, this is, you know, the trees here are well, well cared for and, and have everything they need. The, the institution uh, will be, you know, I believe it will be here for years and years to come but uh, yeah but it runs you know we run it like a, a um you know a, a good business so were you 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 were at the helm through the pandemic then uh i would assume at, at least you were at the helm during the pandemic you were the curator of the collection yeah mm-hmm. what was that like I don't know if it's safe to talk about the pandemic yet. Oh, is it it too soon? I I just, I, I, I was thinking about it and I, and I know that was just a really hard time for everybody, but in the context of bonsai, a lot of bonsai practitioners had a lot more time to work on their trees because, you know, essentially the world shut down, but I don't think that I'm assuming it didn't work that way necessarily for you at the Arboretum, that it was a, a time of, of bonsai prosperity. I would think that would have been quite tough. Well, it, it, I know. I, I think it was um, generally not harmful to the trees. In, in one way, we did have to um, give, lose our help of, with volunteers. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have all of that help. Um, but having a collection on display you know 365 years of, i mean 364 days a year um it's you know it's it's not easy you ha- you want to keep them you know pruned to perfection but it's not good for the health of the trees so we were able to grow out the collection and then, mm-hmm. you know, get it back into shape. The museum was closed. It was, you know, eerily quiet in D.C. during that time. We didn't stop working here in the, the museum. Um, so, we, you know, we were still watering. We were still pruning and wiring and training but the trees. But um, one thing we noticed, you know, nature really came back. The, the amount of birds, the the fox, the, you know, the 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 raccoons they <laughs> there was n- there wasn't any leftover lunches you know in in the in the trash so we're right. gonna go we actually had a, a you know raccoon problem they were looking for the fertilizer we were putting on the trees because they were hungry sure sure you know they're 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 they need the people to, to survive, you know, and the, the people weren't here. 
Wow. Wow. That, uh, that caused, did, did that cause any problems that were, uh, that were beyond your capacity to deal with? No, all r- raccoons were handled humanely. Right. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Goodness gracious. So you guys, when, when the, when the Arboretum reopened to the public, it was almost like, um, everything was reinvigorated to a degree. It was, um, yeah, you know, I, I really think trees being trained as bonsai and, and keeping that such a limited amount of foliage on a tree for years and years and years, that bark, that secondary growth, you know, around the trunk and around the branches, that protection, it gets thin and the trees are really on a fine line as far as their health. And so to let something grow out, you know, I think that, um, you know, it, it thickens that, that vascular cambium that, that's transporting everything the tree needs from roots to shoots and back again. Um, so that was important. So there, yeah, there was a silver lining in the, in that. Yeah. Interesting. And how many more years of curation does, does Michael James have? Oh, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I, I'm very content at the moment. Yeah. So when you have assistant curators and stuff, I mean, Jack kind of, it sounds like he kind of groomed you to take over the collection. That's, that's not something that you start decades in advance that's something that you i guess approach and probably every curator might approach that situation differently but you you're going to be at the helm for a very long time it sounds like yeah well we 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 never know you know when our day comes you know sure yeah Uh, yeah, yeah. you know but yeah hopefully good that's really good and what what's it like when what's it like when old curators come back what's it like when jack comes back what's it like i i is is, is Warren still with us? Is Warren Hill still with us? No, unfortunately not. He passed away. Okay. No, um, but um, Jack Sustick and Jim Hughes are still with us. And, okay. you know, it's always great to have them back. And, and you know, I just, you know, I have a real, um, you know, admiration for both of them. And, and it's, you know, we understand, um, you know, what, you know, what we're going through. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. There's got to be a camaraderie there. Yeah. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. But we have, um, you know, we, we've had some really uh, fun exhibits in the past. Like, um, you know, our more modern exhibit was uh, Nick Lenz, which was like a retrospective of his life right before, you know, unfortunately he passed away. And, um, you know, Nick Lenz was a real, uh, mover and shaker in the bonsai world um, and, and, and taking the American culture and, and putting that into bonsai, you know, the, in, in Japan, it's, uh, you know, they're in China, you know, they, they express their culture through bonsai, you know, the seasons and, and what they appreciate um, and, and the things, you know, the parts of nature that, that they find important. Well, you, Nick Lenz did that, you know, with his culture, 
you know, here in America. And, and he wrote a book, Bonsai from the Wild, and, and talked about all the, you know, the trees um, that he felt were good bonsai material in this country that have never been used, you know, in the past in Asia. Um, so he really played around with, with that and giving trees, you know, you know, poetic names that, that were, you know, somewhat American or, or, you know, interesting to him. Uh, and he was a great potter, a true artist. So, um, you know, I hope to have more exhibits along that line, maybe also bring attention to, um, the importance of conservation and uh, of plant material and what we do here at the Arboretum. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like there's some really unique themes that, that you guys have at your fingertips there that, that really set you apart. I mean, obviously it's, it is the, the epicenter of, of the United States government. Uh, and that alone sort of creates this prestige and establishes uh, a really significant degree of tradition that exists at the National Collection. But, you know, the gesture that established it and, and sort of how it's continued to, to be pursued. And I'm, I, I've learned a lot just talking with you in this very short time about I think you've helped crystallize and formalize you know, concepts that I, that I've been aware of or, or, or have, have heard in discussions, but not necessarily understood, understood. And it is really, it is really interesting, the multitude of perspectives and angles that you can approach bonsai from, and that you can look at bonsai from, um, there's a lot of different lenses that this art form lends itself to. Uh, and it, it, it certainly is, I, I do think bonsai collections create bonsai culture, and you see the strong points of bonsai practice in in North America existing around the the presence of public collections. It's undeniable. And when a public collection expands or a public collection comes into existence and when it starts to improve and when a public collection has a prominent outreach co component or a public programming component or a strong volunteer component. It's like the bonsai community just, it's, it's like, uh, you know, just feeds off of that input that a public collection has the capacity to add and inject into a community. So the, the nation as a whole, you know, it's always been a really interesting thing to think about the American Bonsai Society, but their presence on the West or West Coast or through, I would say West of the Rocky Mountains has always been, uh, it's there, but it's slightly lacking. They've made it as far as, as, as Denver. There may have been ABS events farther west than that. But, but the American Bonsai Society feels like a really, really um, important thing to continue to perpetuate and exist. And there's such a strong presence of bonsai practice in the West, Western United States that I've always thought about that. And I always have been highly motivated to understand the national collection more and for there to be more involvement because it's not like the national collection is cut off from the West coast. I mean, John Naka was one of the most pivotal figures, the John Naka pavilion being, you know, what holds the North American collection Goshen, the most iconic North American tree on a global scale and perspective and the continued involvement of so many 
West Coast and in particular Southern California bonsai practitioners interacting with the National Collection that I, you know, I don't know where my perspective of that lack of a touch point exists, except for we're just on opposite sides of the country. And, and, you know, that's a geographic limitation that has always made bonsai hard. I mean, it's the challenge of the national show. It's the challenge of the Pacific Bonsai Expo. It was a challenge of the Artisans Cup, that, that massive expanse. And I always really, have you, have you been to Japan? Have you, have you seen bonsai in Japan? Have you been to a Kokufu exhibition before? I haven't. I'm planning to go to the Kokofu this winter. Nice. Nice. <laughs> cool. And you're going to get some time to hopefully see some gardens too. Absolutely. We're sister museums with the Omiya Bonsai Art Museum. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely spend time there and visit the Omiya region and all those nurseries. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I always marveled every year during the, the, the judging, the, excuse me, the jury process for the Kokfu, which occurred in January at the Green Club in Tokyo, I always marveled at the fact that Japan is, is sort of broadly the same size as a landmass as California, right? And so to get people from the farther nether regions of Japan to Tokyo to congregate and create this national exhibition of bonsai is always a big ask to get people to do that. But I always marveled at how many people showed up for that juried uh, event, right? Because that's your moment to get your tree into the kokufu. Uh, for professionals, that's the moment that you sort of make or break as a, as a livelihood. You know, can you get your client's tree in? Did you do enough? Uh, that, has a strong determination of whether you're going to maintain that client and whether you're going to add more clients to your, to your black book, you know? And so watching that whole thing happen and trying to think about when I was apprenticing, how does that translate to North America? And, and I think we've made great attempts and kudos and hats off to Bill Valvanis for his continued dedication to bringing the community together and creating that stimulus of a national show. But it is the geographic constraint is so challenging. And on a, on a collection level, on a representation level, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a challenge. I would think, I would think it would continue to be a challenge. And I don't know, does the, does the national collection think about that? Like, does the national collection think about how it has a broader reach in the bonsai community across such a large continent? Yeah, I mean, we, it, it's, a, it's a huge country and it is hard to transport trees, uh, you know, all the way across. But, uh, you know, luckily they're, they are mobile and uh, it can be done. I know it has been, you know, I don't know how long uh, Bill Valvanis will, will hold his, ex, his nationals uh, i don't you know know how how long the expo will be going um it is nice to have alternating exhibits um but it also it would be great to have um you know one gathering you know across yeah. the whole yeah, country yeah, yeah. you know every so often and maybe it can't be every year but um you know it, it is great to come together with the community as a whole um and, but, uh, 
Someone has to travel you know, a different amount than someone else. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. It, it, you know, neutrality makes it all worth it. But, you know, it'd be really cool is if the Arboretum had some trees in that gathering someday. Oh, you mean the National? Uh, sure. The National or whatever, whatever that gathering becomes. Absolutely. I mean, I think... I think those trees are so special. And when you have this community gathering on a national level, maybe one of the voids has been that the national collection is not represented. Well, we do usually bring trees to the Bill Valvanis' show. Oh, do you? Okay. I stand, totally stand corrected. I, I, I'm, I'm maybe I'm thinking selfishly about uh, the National Arboretum trees coming to the West. <laughs> <laughs> now that I mean, they haven't been that far, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How about bringing go, how about bringing Goshen home for an exhibition or two? That, that may happen someday. Uh, there's some trees here that, that don't leave the grounds and, and may never. Uh, yeah. but, uh, yeah, that, that it's worth a thought. It's worth a thought. Hey, listen, you know, I'm not here to stir up dust and put you in compromising positions. I'm just kind of riffing on if I, because one thing to understand about me is everything that I've made and built is because it, it is a product of what I want as a bonsai practitioner, as a bonsai junkie, as a bonsai enthusiast, right? Yes, I'm a bonsai professional. I had to go to Japan and, uh, and I do look like, I do look at it as I had to go to Japan to learn the techniques, uh, that I wanted because it was just, it was such an amalgamation to try and amass the skill set that would be necessary to work on our native Yamadori. That was ultimately my motivation when I went and apprentice with Mr. Kimura. Um, but you know, what I've created at Mirai, what I've created, uh, to, to, to sort of broadly spread bonsai knowledge and, and, and make it uh, accessible, uh, is what I would have wanted, you know? And so when I think about an exhibition, what would, what would get me out of bed for an exhibition? I'm going to be there if Goshen's going to be there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how many times do you get to see that tree or I'm going to be there if, if the, uh, if the, the, the white pine from Hiroshima is there. And I know that might be a tree that doesn't leave the grounds, but I'm just, I'm just planting the seed, Michael, of maybe, uh, you know, a way in which the national collection could open the door to, because I would love to see the national collection be a nationally known source of bonsai pride. And I think to a large degree, it probably is for a generation of practitioners that are seasoned in their understanding and exposure to BCI, ABS, bonsai today, etc., where the East Coast really had a, a, a profound impact on bonsai in North America. But in this sort of next generation and, and continually forward moving iteration of bonsai, there's, there's still so much identity in the national collection that would benefit the bonsai world to be exposed to and see. And I don't know that that means everybody's going to be able to go to other Arboretum in DC to see that. But man, there certainly are some powerful impressions that the Arboretum and the national collection could make, uh, should that be something that interested and fit the goals and purposes and mission uh, of the collection, you know? Well, I, I do think that, um, you know, 
like the Kokofu and those bonsai being displayed in the Tokyo Metropolitan Museum of Art, that's the right place for bonsai to be. Totally. Um, totally. So, so, you know, there should be traveling bonsai exhibitions. It's, it's a logistical uh, nightmare, but, but there should be. Why not have the nationals at a Smithsonian in DC where you guys could just really, where you could really embrace um, the national collection as a centrifuge of a, of, of a sort of national identity. I think there was a, there was a time early on where, where, you know, I was rolling around this concept of the artisan's cup. We had that at the Portland art museum. I feel like that's the right venue, much like the Tokyo Metropolitan Museum of Art is the venue for the national show in Japan every year. It's like, okay, bonsai is an art. These trees are, are, are contextually incredibly rich in terms of the dialogue and the narrative that occurs around them, the history, the time capsule, the artistry, the, the cultural representation, the, 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 the institutions that, that represent that tradition and that context the most exists in DC. I mean, it's the reason that Aaron Packard lived there was because he was surrounded by museums and he went into a curatorial and endeavor and field of study. I don't know if you can pull some strings, but I would love, I would, I would empty the clip with the best trees that Mariah has to offer for a show in the Smithsonian. I mean, I would, I would really go out of my way to make that happen. So there's a lot of ideas that are going to the table here that I didn't, in no way do I want you to feel uh, like I'm a, uh, just sort of like putting you on blast, but you are, I you are stimulating these ideas. I know what you're getting at, oh. okay. but, and, and, but thank you for saying it. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe though there, there needs to be more meaning, you know, and, and people have to, um, you know, see you know past that that initial uh shock and 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 jaw-dropping beauty of a bonsai tree uh, and see why it's important you know um maybe uh like for instance you know trees that are in peril and this is is not my necessarily my idea it comes from a conversation i had today with the director dr olson and um but imperiled trees, you know, the olives, you know, we, we have uh, Dr. Ramon Jordan here that is an expert on festi- uh, xylella, you know, bacterial leaf scorch uh, and the bacteria that gets in plants clogs their vascular system. You know, he's a virologist and, and, you know, his, his role to, uh, you know, serve, you know, ornamental horticulture is to uh, have plants that, can resist these things or be able to identify these viruses, uh, you know, like the, the imperiled olives, you know, from, from this bacteria that's, that's killing them off. Sure. Um, other trees like the sequoias, you know, we have a sequoia sempervirens by June chambers here. And, um, you know, th- those trees are in peril. Like you, you've mentioned the, they're one forest fire away. Yeah. Yeah. That's an imperiled tree. That's a problem. Um, yeah, it is a problem. Our wetlands and, and you know, the bogs you and Chris Baker spoke about. Totally. Um, you know, our D.C. used to all be a wetland. Well, those environments are in peril. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, the five needle pines, white pine, blister rust, all of the broadleaf deciduous, shot hole borer, emerald ash borer, you know, the blights that are attacking a majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an unfortunate uh it's an unfortunate moment of rapid transition that trees are having a hard time mm-hmm. keeping up with. And I, I think there's no better time and no better vehicle to help people understand and develop empathy and identify with uh, some of these imperiled environments than right now through the context of bonsai. I think I, I think you're onto something very, very important there. How about an ash tree? Do you know who has the best bonsai ash tree to, to display you know, in the Smithsonian? If we don't know it, we will find it. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> that's yeah, what we that's do. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, but the this is to, to go back to your point where we talked about earlier of like the native species in North America being relatively recent in their exploration as bonsai subjects. There are so many people in, their, in the quiet, you know, seclusion of their backyard that have been doing crazy things in bonsai for a long time that nobody knows about. And sometimes it's just the right call to action that exposes you to something that you never thought you would see. And I really, I I think at the epicenter of when I did the artisan's cup, the hope was to tease out some of that. And I, and I think we saw some of it and I think you've seen some of it in the national and I think you've seen some of it and we'll continue to see more of it at the Pacific bonsai expo. Should Jonas and Eric, you know, continue to do that, bless their hearts. It's a challenging endeavor. Bill Valvanis must be bionic. I don't know. That guy's got to have either clones of themselves or just be a rebuilt robot that we don't know about. Cause I know my experience with the artisan's cup is, wow, I can do one of those or, or two of those, uh, you know, in a lifetime, maybe that, that might be the extent of that for me, but other people having the capacity to do it more. And I think you're right. Creating the right context with which to have an exhibition or an event of that scale that would warrant an institution like the Smithsonian and the pieces being displayed, having the carrying the right gravity for that environment. I I, I think I think everything you're saying I, I am totally on board with. And then I would also say I think that the opportunities, the trees, the practitioners, I think I think the stage is set for something pivotal like that. I think the community does need does need the guidance and the leadership of the National Arboretum to to open the door or create that venue for that kind of significant breakthrough. You know, those game changing moments in art where a medium transcends the limitations or preconceived notions into becoming a new canon and uh, a widely more understood uh, communication tool those take big, bold moves by very connected, powerful institutions. And there might not be a bigger and more powerful institution in North America than the Arboretum. Yeah. But even as big and powerful as, as you know, it may be, you know, something, you know, of this scale, the, the museum itself came about with the, the support of the bonsai enthusiasts in America. It it was built by the people who wanted to see, you know, bonsai on display. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, the clubs, the, and it was national. It was, you know, it was the group, you know, the Southern California, um, you know, the, the Golden State Bonsai Society and all the clubs across the country, Houston, Texas, and, 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 you know, Portland and the Rocky Mountains, they all came together to create this museum. And, you know, it takes that, that whole community to, to keep it going and to, to make things like, like that happen. Um, yeah. you know, and maybe it takes a call for, for trees, you know, imperiled bonsai, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where are they around the country? And put out the bat signal. Together. You just got to put out the bat signal. I, I am, I am sure, I am sure people would show up. I am beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt positive, you know, and and that's, if there's some, if there's really potential there, I'm very, being very serious. If there's really potential there, there's, there, there's are certainly a number of open ears that, that would, I'm, I'm, I have to believe would jump at the opportunity. So we've really, we've really gotten somewhere today. We've really gotten somewhere today. I love this idea. It sounds like it's just uh, only a, the, a beginning, but uh, everything's got to start with an idea. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I so appreciate uh, you taking the time to to talk with us. I really um, really valued what I learned about the the national collection today. It was a lot. It's a lot. I'm going to be thinking about it for a while. But I think more, maybe the more important thing is just, uh, recognizing what you just finished with, which is it took this community to create the national collection and it continues to take this community across North America to keep it going. Um, just the fact that, just the fact that you guys are willing to talk with us, I think is a great step forward in in helping the community understand where you're at, how you came to be and what you need. Big, big deal. Really big deal today. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. It was good good talking with you and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again in the near future. I hope so. I hope so. I hope, I hope we talk more and more frequently. I think that would be really productive. And, um, you know, you got a huge supporter out here in Portland, Oregon. I, we, I really, uh, like I said, the, the national collection is a huge source of pride, uh, for me having grown up in Colorado and not having a bonsai identity, but having the resources of, you know, all of the periodicals where the National Arboretum and the National Collection was was really put on a pedestal. It's continued to, in my in, in my youthful bonsai mind, that continues to drive the more mature bonsai practitioner right now. I still, the National Collection holds that special little pedestal in my mind of like this institution that I, you know, represents both the history as well as the continued modernizing uh, practice of bonsai. And it's, it's, it's exciting that you're at the helm, that things are going well. And um, yeah, maybe there's something to come here with this notion of trees and peril and the context that 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 maybe you guys could open the door for, but the community would need to meet the call to action. Yeah, and and trust me, we're well aware of all that you and 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 your bonsai enthusiasts on the West Coast are doing, and all across the country, we do follow it, and and you know we're we're you know we're we're trying to serve uh, the the people. You know, cool. we're that's that's our duty. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. You've got a Pacific, you've got a Pacific coast boy as your assistant curator. So it, you know, Oregon came to the national collection from what I understand. I had the pleasure to meet Andy at, uh, at the national show two shows ago and spend some time with him. And I know he had spent some time with, uh, with, with one of my good friends, Tom Roberts. So I think that whole, that whole, uh, connection is pretty cool too. Yeah, and we didn't have a tree represented that year, and that was because of COVID yeah. and travel restrictions. So that is one year we 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 didn't bring a tree, but normally we we always want to represent uh, the museum and be a part of the National Bonsai Expo or um, exhibition. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, I, I, I think we should stay in touch and uh, I wish you all the best moving into winter at the National Collection. And, uh, and again, thanks for, thanks for the work you're doing and, uh, and thanks for joining us today. It was really a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Have a good evening. All right. Take care, Michael. Bye. Bye.